Several years ago, I became deeply aware of my own fears. And it had to do with the loss of a very important prayer journal. See, uh, years ago, the Holy Spirit had given me very particular promises about my life and what he wanted to do. And I had written these promises in my prayer journal, dating them very specifically, trying to remember exactly what the Lord had said so that I, I would not get it wrong or forget. And the Lord, along with these promises, gave me certain commands that I was to, uh, to, to follow in association with the promises. And I wrote it all down very carefully. Well, uh, Tracy and the kids and I went on a uh, family trip to visit Tracy's family in, uh, in Northern California. And I, uh, on that flight, I pulled out my journal and I had put it in the front uh, pocket of the seat in front of me. And you guessed it, the next morning when I uh, went to go get my prayer journal, I couldn't find it anywhere. And as I began to look around and realize it wasn't in my briefcase or, in my, uh, uh, or anywhere else, I realized, oh no, I know exactly where it is. It's on the airplane. And uh, a sense of dread came over me immediately as I realized what had happened. And that's because the very day before we went on this trip, I had very purposely and consciously disobeyed one of the commands that God specifically had given me in association with the promise. And a sense of dread that, oh no, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm getting the promises are being withdrawn and the journal is long gone. Why did I disobey? Well, in the end it was because of fear. I feared that God wouldn't keep his word that I had a sense of distrust in what he said. I was turning to human wisdom because what God had said for some reason wasn't, didn't seem to be enough. And I was willing to break the command of God in order, ironically, to receive the blessing of God. And my fear sunk me into this languishing in doubt and uncertainty because of my direct disobedience to what God had said. Even so, brothers and sisters, the Lord's trajectory is for us to rise in a sense, not to languish in uncertainty or fear, but rather to ascend higher and higher into God's blessing. Now, the crucial word, I think, uh, that stands out to me in Psalm 128, as it's printed in your bulletin, is the word fear. It's right in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then it's repeated again in verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And there's at least four ways that the Bible uses the term fear, and it depends on the object of fear. But clearly the two primary ways that the Bible, when it refers to fear, it has the fear of the Lord, which is this positive idea in which one's life is in obedience to what God has said because it flows out of a sense of awe and reverence and love for God. In opposition to the fear of the Lord is another type of fear, and we might call it a worldly fear. 
A worldly fear is a mix of anxious uncertainty as you foresee the possibility of losing something here in this life that is dearly loved. And I think from a certain point of view, these Psalms of Ascent are intended to take us from a lower worldly type of fear and have us travel upward into this upward holy kind of fear. Chapters 120 through 135, 10% of the Psalms, are Psalms of Ascents. It's plural in the Hebrew, which sounds a bit strange to my ear. Ascent is this idea of a, a continual rise. Uh, but I, I suppose ascents in the plural carries this idea of a multiple steps in rising upward. And I, I found helpful in Augustine as he reflects on the Psalms of Ascent, he argues that these Psalms of Ascent are intended to be a spiritual metaphor for our journey into the life of Christ. It's a pattern, the ascents are a pattern for the spiritual life as the soul ascends. Well, Psalm 128 invites us to rise, to rise in ascending spiritual steps. One step is from a lower worldly fear and stepping into the claim and belief of God's blessing. Another step moves from the reception of temporal blessing into holy fear. And then a, a final step is from holy fear into the grace of Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend a few minutes walking through each one of these steps. So the first ascending spiritual step is from worldly fear to claiming God's blessing. You see, since the fall of man, our souls produce these gnawing, crippling fears that debilitate and freeze or turn us into dominating kinds of people. Fears can turn into phobias, which about 10% of the population struggle with various kinds of phobias, which the mental health community defines as overwhelming, persistent, irrational fears of, some, of losing a certain object or situation. Uh, consider these phobias that begin with the letter A. There's, of course, arachnophobia, which is the fear of spiders. There's acrophobia, which is the fear of heights. I never heard of this one. There is electrophobia, which is the fear of chickens. And then I'm not quite even sure how to pronounce this one, but there's arachbutrophobia, which is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> Thankfully, not all of us have to deal with these challenging phobias that the mental health community has learned how to help people. But all of us struggle with gnawing anxiety and fear. At its core, fear manifests as a response to the possibility of loss. So you can have a fear of being rejected, which is a loss of a sense of a worry of loss of social status or the esteem from your peers. Or there's the fear of failure, which is a, the fear of losing your identity and purpose 
There's the fear of taking risks, which, is the, which is, uh, comes from a fear of losing control and perhaps the loss of security that is often comes from the status quo. And most everyone fears death, which especially to the unredeemed appears to be, but it isn't, a, the, law, the fear of losing everything. Fear forms the soul actually in two opposite kinds of directions. It cripples the soul. So the, you begin to withdraw, to run away, to escape, to get frozen like deer in the headlights. Perhaps you've experienced fear in just that kind of way. But fear also leads in the opposite direction so that you can become a dominating, controlling, angry sort of soul. You're overconfident. And you even, because you are so aware, aware of your fears, you use fear in order to dominate and control others. Fear is rampant. It's everywhere you look, and it's everywhere in your own heart if you look close enough. I think it's especially, speaking as a man, it's especially common in men who are socialized to project confidence. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. You don't have to worry about it. And they can, people can become very, men can be especially, and women can too, I know that, but men especially can be very overbearing, micromanaging. But underneath it is trembling fear of losing something, which is driving that kind of dominating personality. What is it, friends? What is it that you lose, fear to lose? Can you name it? Is it coming into your mind? Well, what do you do about it? How do you deal in overcoming and conquering fear? Let me just lay quickly three ways of dealing with fear. The first is to name the fear. You have to become conscious that you're actually being controlled by fear. And this can be difficult for some of us. But it's healthy and right to identify, actually, there's some fear. I'm, I'm worried about losing this, and that's why I'm feeling this way or acting this way. You need to name the fear. I've always liked in the, the book series, Harry Potter, the, the evil character Voldemort. And most people won't name him. They just say, he who must not be named. And it was actually Dumbledore speaking to the young Harry and giving him the advice. He said, Call him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things because fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. The point is we need to be honest with ourselves and honest with others that there's some fear going on in our hearts. That's why I'm acting this way. That's why I'm feeling this way. That's why I'm struggling to take this particular step. Fear has its power as it stands and waits in the shadows, unnamed, without being identified. But it's the light. It's the light of honesty, drawing it out. That's when fear loses its power. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You see, when you come into the light, the fears dissipate. And the fear goes away. So we need to name the fear. But we also need to 
prey into the fear because fear is not merely psychological. There is a spiritual uh, underlayment to it. So we need to use spiritual practices to engage it. And Psalm 128 is a prayer, in fact. And so strength is received in engaging our anxieties and fears as we pray directly into them. We identify them, we name them, that's what's going on, and then we call upon the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit, asking for strength in and through the anxiety that you're facing. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious or afraid about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and then that peace that passes understanding will come upon you and it will guard your heart. So you name the fear and you have to pray into the fear but then I think thirdly the antidote is claiming the Lord's blessing in response to the fear and I think that's partly what's going on in this psalm of blessing of Psalm 128. So is your fear concerning your work or your career, then claim verse 2 as the blessing that God has announced over you. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. I don't know how your job's going to work out, but God is going to bless it somehow in some way, and you can claim that. And as you claim it, the fear that's driving you will begin to lose its power. Or maybe your fear is concerning a relationship, or particularly around a marriage. And though it's written in a male-centered perspective, verse 3 is, I think, intended to go and be applied to both husbands and wives. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Maybe you're dealing with some challenging marital issues driven by your spouse, but you claim the blessing, and as you claim the blessing, the fears that are actually getting in the way and just making things worse will begin to be undermined. Or perhaps you have fears about your children or your grandchildren. I know a lot of parents and grandparents worried, very anxious about their children and grandchildren. You claim the blessing of verse 2. You shall be blessed. Uh, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. You claim the blessing. I don't know how it's going to work out with their health. I don't know how it's going to work out with their mental health. I don't know how. You don't know. But you, rather than allowing the fear to penetrate you, you speak the blessing over it and over your children. And that blessing will come. It will come. That is the promise of God. Or, so you address. We address our fears with the blessing of God as you pray into it and as you identify it. You apply this healing balm of blessing to the fears and that is how it is undone and reversed. Claiming the blessing of God is based on who God is. That God is good. That his love is enduring forever. And that he desires to bless you and me. That's who he is. I know some people are walking around as if God is some angry, monstrous ogre holding back from you, analyzing everything you do, seeking to destroy you. No, that's not who God is. God is good. And out of his cup of, of goodness, it overflows a blessing to every one of you. So so that the psalmist in one, Psalm 145.7 says, the Lord is good to all. Doesn't matter how, who your life is or what it's been like or what you've done or what you haven't done. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Glory be to God for this goodness of who he is. And so 
We are to claim the blessing of God based on the goodness of God as you pray into these things. And you name the fears and the worldly fears that hold us and grip us and cripple us begin to lose their power. So one step is of spiritual ascent is this movement from a lower worldly fear to claiming the blessing of God. And this is oftentimes, for many, the, the first experience of the, the goodness of God and entering into, uh, into a spiritual life and walking with God. But there's another ascending spiritual step. And it's the step from the movement from temporal blessing to holy fear. Holy fear, it's this idea that uh, that God is reverent. It's, ha it's having the sense of reverence or awe for who God is. It's a, this is something that is in the Old Testament, but it's also something that's also repeated multiple times by multiple authors in the New Testament. The fear of the Lord is this disposition of the soul that is in awe and reveres God for his goodness, for his perfection and his beauty for being all-powerful and omniscient and transcendent. God is God. You recognize that you, who he is. And it leads to this sense of awe and reverence, this fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is more than just awe and reverence. The fear of the Lord is perfected in love for God. In fact, you can see this in the Hebrew Parallel, parallelism in Psalm 147.11. It says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, and then here's the parallel, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And we see multiple times in scripture that fear and love are actually not in opposition to one another, and I'd like to suggest to you that it is perfect love that produces a very particular kind of holy fear. It was Aquinas and his Summa Theologica, who wrote 12 articles on what he titled the gift of fear. And he said, that, he said this, he said, the more one loves someone, the more you love someone, the more one fears lest one should offend him or be separated from him. And I guess I can pause here and then also say something else about the fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord actually comes in, perhaps we could say, two phases there's a more lower or childish kind of fear of the Lord. And then there is the eternal fear of the Lord in which all of the saints in heaven have entered into. It's a more mature form of the fear of the Lord. And that is what God is calling us into. The lower form is a fear of God's punishment. And that fear of punishment is not evil, but it's often necessary. It's necessary because we're spiritually immature and we, we need to be reminded to get things in order and we better listen or there are gonna be ramifications that we're gonna to have to deal with. We know our children need that, that kind of in incentive because they're not ready yet to, to love the thing itself that we're encouraging them to love. But make no mistake about it, this immature kind of fear of punishment is not what God wants in the end. That's not his intention, this fear. The fear of the Lord is something, well, the Apostle John says that there is no fear in love. We read it a few minutes ago. But perfect love casts out fear 
for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so as we move from this slavish fear of punishment, this immature kind of fear of the Lord, to this more perfect fear of the Lord, it's love that actually perfects us. Perhaps an illustration would help. I was talking with a husband who had committed years before adultery against his wife. He repented, and she amazingly and beautifully forgave him. Years later, in reflecting on all that he had done, he said, I caused such devastation to my wife. I inflicted such pain. I brought such rupture into our relationship. I never want to do that again because I love my wife far too much. And then he said this, I am terrified to ever allow it to happen again. And so he's constantly on his guard, never willing out of love to allow that rupture and that pain to be inflicted on he who he loves. That's fear, holy fear. Catherine of Siena, a 14th century Christian mystic, she wrote in her dialogues describing the fear of the Lord this way. She said, the fear of the Lord is perfectness of fear of simply sinning. Not because of a fear of personal damnation, but because sin is an insult to my Lord, supreme goodness. And so holy fear is, is this reverence and awe for God's majesty and his holiness, but it's combined with love's horror of the very idea or thought that I could possibly disappoint the God whom I love, who has died for me and who loves me. I am horrified at the thought of rupturing that relationship. So my friends, do you have this holy fear? Is such fear in you? Well, how is it that the Bible encourages us to grow into this holy fear of the Lord? Well, I think the, for the soul to ascend from that next step, it's usually, not always, but it's often correlated with earthly demise and debasement. In other words, we have to be tested. We have to endure suffering and experience difficult temporal loss in order for us to spiritually ascend in this way. The supreme example in the Old Testament is Job. Job chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and he says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan is essentially claiming that Job fears God because of all the blessings that he has received from God. And Satan's claim is take away the blessings and you won't have that, that fear anymore. And a God's response through, in effect, is no. Job fears me because he loves me. 
He fears me just for who I am, not because of what I have given him. You see, with the, with the loss of temporal blessing, your true heart is revealed, isn't it? You begin to realize what you really love because you fear to lose what you love the most. If the earthly blessing is taken away and the person says, I don't want to have anything to do with God, how could God do that to me? The heart has been revealed. That they're loving the blessing more than they love the giver of the blessing. In the case of Job, Psalm 128 doesn't seem to apply, though he fears God, it says, because Job's work was lost, his fields were lost, his wife was lost, his children were lost, his home was lost, his social standing was lost, his physical health was lost from the bottom of his sole of his foot to the top of his scalp. Everything was lost. But in the end, Job feared losing God more than all the temporal blessings combined. And this is what suffering and testing does to us. It exposes the heart of what you truly love because you fear to lose that which you love the most. And it reveals in the end, as Job experienced, what the greatest blessing actually is. What is the blessing of God after all? Is it a flourishing family? Is it a great career? Is it having ample money? What is the fear of the Lord and what does the blessing bring? Well, Job shows us. He shows us that the real blessing is God himself. Why follow Christ? Why follow him? Because of what you're going to get? Because of the blessings that he's going to give in this life? No. In the end, the blessing is God himself. It's entering into the love of God. You see, what is the reward? God is the reward. There is nothing better. And if God cannot be taken away from you, which is the promise, then the blessing is real and it is true. The psalmist says in chapter 73, verse 26, my heart may fail, my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. And if you have the portion of the Lord, everything else is unimportant. And so we're called into this taking the step of ascent to letting go of the temporal blessing, as good as it might be from God, and to ascend higher into this greater place of holy fear, which is a pure and unadulterated love for God and enjoying his love. But there's one last ascending spiritual step that I want to bring to your attention. And it's the movement from holy fear to the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, there's actually a major problem in the interpretation of Psalm 128. Do you know what it is? The problem is, is that in Psalm 36.1, as well as which Paul repeats and quotes in Romans chapter 3, in a very important passage, the Apostle Paul, and as well as the psalmist, as well as 
the uh, other Old Testament prophets, they say this about us, about you and me. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. And then Paul concludes this major important section in, in Romans chapter 3 about the depra depravity of man in verse 18. He says this, there is no, quoting Psalm 36, 1, there is no fear of God in their eyes. Now, do you see the problem? If all of us don't fear God in the end, and that's what the conclusion is, then the blessings of Psalm 128 don't really mean anything. Because the blessings is for those who fear the Lord, but we're then learning that we don't fear the Lord. So therefore, the blessings cannot be claimed. As far as I know, there's only one scripture that resolves this problem. And it's in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, where Isaiah predicts the coming Messiah. And listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3 of who this Messiah will be. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, as out of the Davidic line. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then Isaiah says this, and his delight, the Messiah's delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So that's the resolution. None of us fear the Lord. None of us live up to the obedience that God has called each one of us to. But one, Jesus Christ, the messianic branch, the one who has come in perfect obedience to what God has called us to. He is the one the one and only who fears the Lord. And it's from him that all the blessings flow. And so now we go back to Psalm 128. And this is not an allegorical interpretation, but this is what we would call a redemptive historical understanding of Psalm 128. The true fulfillment, the true meaning of Psalm 128 needs to be understood as it is an implicit messianic psalm. It's talking about one, Jesus Christ, who alone fears the Lord. And so in verse 2, the labor of his hands is a reference ultimately to the obedience of Christ. The fruit of that obedience is salvation that he gives to you and me. Or in verse 3, his wife is a reference to the bride of Christ, his wife, his spouse, the church. And we know that the church is quite broken. And yet we can endure in these relationships, gathering together in worship because the promise of God over the church is blessing to the one, to the husband who fears the Lord and thus his wife will be blessed, you and me in this church. The church is the world. And in verse 3, the children ultimately are not referring to you and my, my children, but it refers to you and me. As we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become in faith children of the living God. We become his children, his fruit, 
the one man who fears the Lord. This is the wonderful reality of this psalm and the blessings that are promised. So do you see this spiritual rising that is ascending through these steps? One step is the overcoming of worldly fear by claiming the blessings of God. Another step is is then letting go of the temporal blessings, as sweet as they might be, being willing at least to let them go, in order, especially through testing and suffering, to be elevated into a more perfect holy love, a holy fear of God. But then this third step is it's not really a step at all. It's mostly the, the entire material of the stairway. We do not achieve holy fear. It's not in you and me. It's achieved by the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we stand amazed with gratitude and joy because Christ's favor indeed is upon you and me and his blessing. Well, that week I had spent uh, in California on vacation. It wasn't a great vacation because the looming question of what happened to that prayer journal. I had gone on the Southwest uh, website and filed the lost and found to try to find the journal. Uh, I went back every day looking for an update and every day uh, was the, in quotes, not found, not found. And as the week went on, I became more and more concerned that I wouldn't get the journal back and that everything that I, uh, that it implied was now taken away. And I had to face my fear. Why did I do that? Oh Lord, forgive me for bowing to my own fears rather than believing you. Well, as we were traveling home, we uh, got to the airport a good hour and a half, two hours earlier than we needed to be. And Tracy took the kids. Uh, we were going on a different airline, but I, I said, let me go, uh, let me take the the train terminal to, the, uh, to where Southwest is, and let's just see, perhaps, we, it will be there. So I, I just prayed, Lord, please, please forgive me, and please restore this journal. And I got down to the baggage claim, and there was the customer service where I, I had a sense that I was supposed to go, and I went in there. There was nobody there other than uh, two people. Uh, and I explained the situation, described the journal, told them of the flight number I had been on. It's very important that I get this journal back. It's a prayer journal, I told them. And uh, it, can you look? And, and the man went to the back, and he was gone for several minutes. And then he came out, and there was no journal. I had to receive that news. It's okay, okay. That's all right. It is what the Lord has decided, and I accept it, Lord, for what you have. And as I turned to leave, there was an older woman standing behind the computer. And she said to me, excuse me, what, what does the journal look like? And I said, uh, I described it to her. And right there, underneath the computer, she said, hold on. And she pulled out my journal. And she said, is this it? I said, that's it. <laughs> My name is written right on front, right in the front. 
she uh, kind of gave me a hard time, made me show my driver's license, and then looked in the journal to make sure it was really my name in it and so on. And as she handed it to me, she said this. She said, Michael, his favor is upon you. Brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ, his favor, his blessing is upon you. Be done with the fears. Address them and elevate yourself into the fear of the Lord for your joy and his glory. Lord Jesus, we cry out to you to do a great work in each one of our lives. Dissipate what needs to go. Draw our hearts into the pure and awesome love of God. And Lord, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.